Well, greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Seminary Unboxed, the official podcast of Wesley Biblical Seminary. This is Dr. Matt Ayers, your host of Seminary Unboxed and president of Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we train trusted leaders for faithful churches, and we have programs for you. We have audit programs. Audit our classes. I'm teaching a uh, course, 500-level course in the Book of Psalms in the fall, starting August 14th, Monday night, 6.30 to 8.30. You can take it online, live via Zoom. You can watch the recordings. You can come to our building in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, you can audit the class, $250. Don't have to do any of the work. You can just sit and enjoy and listen, learn things about the book of Psalms that you've never le- known before. Uh, add uh, another dimension to your reading of the book. We will be exploring lots of very exciting things and reading the book of Psalms as a whole, as a book, as opposed to just as individual standalone Psalms. Um, you can find out more information, wbs.edu. That's wbs.edu. And you can go to just click on the apply button and then choose audit, and then you'll be able to choose the Psalms course. So today we move into our last of the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. This is the letter to the church at Laodicea. And as much as I love these letters, I'll be glad to be moving on and into the rest of the book. So let's go ahead and read together. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Excuse me, you were neither cold nor hot. Would that you either be were would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame, clothe, clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so let's get started here. Kester, try to give you some historical information on the church of Laodicea, the ancient city of Laodicea. Complacency is a major issue for the congregation here. Christ introduces himself to them as the faithful and true witness, and he challenges their inability to see the truth about themselves. In their own eyes, they're doing very well, and they can say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. In one sense, that perception is plausible. The city was an important center for trade, especially in the soft black wool and textiles that were produced in the region. An earthquake damaged Laodicea in AD 60, but the city was soon rebuilt. Wealthy patrons provided a large stadium and theater, a monumental gate, and a colonnade along the main street. Religious celebrations honored Zeus, Dionysus, and other deities, and there was a local cult to the emperor Domitian. In contrast to the impoverished Christians at Smyrna, those at Laodicea benefited from the thriving Roman-era economy. Jesus is referred to here, refers to himself as the Amen, the words of the Amen. Amen is a Hebrew word. Um, Interestingly enough, a lot of people think it's a Greek word. It is used in Greek, but it is an adaptation from Hebrew or an import word from Hebrew. And it just indicates affirmation. It's a way of saying truly or verily or I agree or may it be. 
But here, this is more the words of the true one, the words of the amen, the truthful one, the faithful, and again, the true witness. Remember that in John's writings, in all the New Testament, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Before he speaks in the Gospel of John, truly, truly, I say to you, the truth will set you free, and I have sanctified them in truth. So many of us coming out of our sinful condition, totally depraved, our deprivation is originated or it finds its source in deception. In the Garden of Eden, it is through deception that the serpent destroyed and brought about death into the world. Death is always attached to deception. But Jesus is true and he is faithful. It's also why Christians must also be true and faithful. We must also accurately and faithfully represent who we are and to whom we belong. Christians should have no dealings with falsehood should have no dealings with lying or deception. Christians should always be above the bar when it comes to truthfulness and honesty because deception is the way of the darkened world. And we contribute and collude with the fog of evil with the world when we're not true. We must be true. No snakes, meaning that there are no snakes in this grass. There's no deception here. What you see is what you get. There's not a smokescreen. There's not a masquerade. There's no mask here. This is the true version of what you see as we present ourselves to the world and to one another. There's an honesty as Jesus hangs naked on a cross. Truly, there's nothing to be hidden. Everything has been brought to light. Jesus is the amen, the faithful and true witness. Um, so here, of course, it's a title for Christ, drawing on um, Isaiah chapter 65, 16. It says this, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. That is the God of the Amen. He who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, the God of the Amen. Of course, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not lie. So, the God of truth resonating with the fact that Jesus is true and a faithful witness. Jesus is the faithful one. We've talked about this before in the sense that he faithfully represents God to humanity, but he also is a faithful witness to what humanity was always intended to be, the true image of God. John Wesley defines the image of God as righteousness and holiness. He is true and faithful. We are not true and faithful in our fallenness and in our sin condition to properly representing that image in the world, thereby stifling the glory of God in the creation as he intended to reveal it through his image bearers. We've been twisted, and we rather share in the image of the fallen one, of dead the devil himself. We look more like him. He, we look more like his children, as Jesus says to uh, some of his opponents. You share the resemblance of your father because you're liars. But Jesus shares the resemblance of the true father, not the liar, not the deceptive one. Now, this, of course, is in contrast with the lack of faithfulness of the Laodiceans. So the fact that Jesus is called the true one is supposed to be a standard by which he is about to judge and measure his followers in Laodicea. We are measured against the standard of Jesus. I know that seems a little scary to a lot and to, uh, to many, even to me, if I think about it. Uh, but however, we have been given provision through the powerful indwelling of the Holy Spirit to share in the likeness of Jesus. The same way that we share in his righteousness that is imputed to us, by faith. Likewise, we share in holy love that is shared between the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the internal life of the Trinity because the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. Therefore, we can conform to the image of Christ, not on our own efforts, but by grace through faith with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. This is nothing short of the very high standard and calling of holiness that we find throughout all of Scripture. Okay, moving on to verse, that was verse 14. Let's move on to verse uh, 15, which says this, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. 
excuse me, cold nor hot. I have such a habit of putting hot first. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot because you're lukewarm and neither not hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Um, so a lot of interpreters get this wrong. They think that cold is bad and hot is good because of course we don't want to be known as being cold in our faith but hot, passionate, a fire in our bellies for, and a hunger for holiness, right? But that's not the case here. Cold is not a, a bad thing. That wouldn't make sense because Jesus is condemning them for not being cold. So he wouldn't say, I condemn you for having a cold faith. That is a bad thing. Um, what Hot and cold are both positive qualities. In this sense, cold water brings refreshment, and hot water brings healing. So here what Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans is that in a hurting world, you are bringing neither healing hot nor refreshment to a world that is thirsty for God. It's interesting, relatively recently, you know, this is being recorded on April 24th, 2023. There was an outpouring at Asbury University and tens of thousands of people came, stood in line around blocks and blocks. The town of Wilmore, Kentucky had to put a, a digital sign out front saying the town is at capacity. Don't come in. There's too many people here, too many cars. People are hungry for God. The church is intended to be a place of refreshment to satisfy that hunger. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He says, I will die, I will raise again, and I will send you the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit will be a wellspring of eternal waters. He's talking to the woman at the well in Samaria um, in John chapter 4, when he says, I'm going to give you water that if you drink from it, you'll never be thirsty again. That is the reconciliation with God the Father through atonement, through Jesus' atoning work, taking on our own punishment for sin so that we can be restored to fellowship with God the Father. That's what satisfies He's telling the Laodiceans they have not, they've abandoned that message. They are not refreshing to the world. They sound just like everyone else. There's nothing different. And they're not bringing healing either. And healing, of course, comes with the, re, the, the, the uh, reestablishment's not the right word, uh, restoration of the presence of God through the Holy Spirit that was lost in the fall. And so they're not preaching the message and living out and embodying the message they are intended to because the message of the gospel is always refreshing and healing to the world around it. it doesn't mean that there won't be opponents there will always be opponents in our world around us but our opponents are only going to come against us when we are truly refreshing and healing to the world but when we accommodate a policy of accommodation when we adopt the policy of accommodation and the message of the church sounds the same as the message of the world there's nothing refreshing about it there's no healing in it there's no promise of healing when christianity is no different than any bit of the culture or world religions around it it's refreshing and healing because it, it's a message of the story of God taking on flesh and taking on the penalty of sin, recapitulating the story of Adam, being the true human being and allow us, allowing us to share in the interior life of the Holy Trinity itself. We cannot abandon that message when we do. We're neither hot nor cold. We're leak, we are lukewarm. I will spit you out of my mouth. In other words, you will no longer be a part of me if you don't fulfill your calling to be a source of nourishment, refreshment, that is, and healing to the world. Kester writes, both hot and cold are understood positively. Together, they characterize works of pre perseverance, faith, and love, and are synonymous with commitment. commitment. Tepidness is a contrast to both hot and cold and signifies complacency. 
Alternatively, some interpreters take heat as a positive term for faith and coldness as a negative term for unbelief. And, and again, that doesn't make sense because he tells them um, that he's upset because they're not cold. He wouldn't be upset with them for not being cold. If cold was a bad thing, he'd be happy for them. So taken this way, uh, taken the wrong way of cold being bad, Christ would, be, would rather them be bad. He's saying, I'd rather you be cold. I'd rather you vehemently deny your faith than just be complacent about it. And that doesn't mesh. That doesn't comport with other parts of Scripture. Talking about, let's take, for example, the mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, or just a little bit of faith is the beginning of a big faith. And so I'd rather you have a little bit of faith than no faith at all. Versus if we interpret this as cold as a bad thing, it's saying I'd rather you have no faith at all than just a little bit of faith, which does, of course, doesn't comport with the rest of the testimony of Scripture. Okay, uh, moving on to verse 16. Oh, sorry, we've already read 16. You are lukewarm. Um, so 17, for you say, I'm rich, I have pers- prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Um, interestingly enough, they are blind and their affluence has blinded them. So affluence, meaning their, their, their prosperity, the material prosperity has blinded them to their true condition. Now, this is interesting. There's nothing wrong with having prosperity and having wealth so far as it's not a love for money, which is the root of all evil, says scripture, of course, not money itself, but the love of money. And so far as it doesn't make us self-sufficient to the point of believing that we need not a helper, that all of our needs are met because we have the wealth that we have. Material affluence is not always a sign of God's blessing. Just because someone has money in the bank account does not always mean that God has blessed them. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes that material blessing can actually be a hindrance. We see this several times in the Gospels. The rich young ruler, Jesus, says, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And he goes away sad, for he had much. Jesus says it is easier for uh, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to come into the kingdom of God. So material affluence can be a hindrance, but not necessarily always have to be. But here it's interesting that they are blind to it, and it is their affluence that has blinded them. They are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Of course, the contrast here is where Christians are to be the glory of God, honorable and dignified, right? So uh, poor, Christians are to be rich in righteousness and holiness. Wretched, Christians are to be dignified and not pitiable. Poor, or excuse me, blind, we are, Christians are to be the ones who have their eyes open open through a restored relationship with Jesus, not to mean that we're Gnostics, meaning that salvation comes with the ascent of knowledge, the acquisition of knowledge, but rather we have been put to death in our sin and put to death the enslavement to flesh, and we are now walking in the light, transferred into the kingdom of light from the kingdom of darkness because of Christ's work. Jesus is the light of the world that comes into the world, the light by which we see. And even the stories of Jesus healing blind people are oftentimes metaphorical. Not They're literal too, but there's a, spirit. let's say, not metaphorical, but a spiritual significance to the healing of the blind. Um, that our spiritual eyes are opened. We are blind in our sin, not aware of our sin, not aware of the holiness of God. Okay, we're supposed to be renewed in our minds and clothed, not naked, but clothed in righteousness. Robert Mount says this about their claim to prosperity. Their 
pretentious claim was not only that they were rich, but they, that they had achieved it on their own. And beyond that, that they had need of nothing. And that, of course, is a problem. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Uh, so he says, I counsel you to buy from me. I recommend to you. So there's a freedom of response here. This is a call to repent. He doesn't force them to buy it from them. And like, likewise, in the upcoming verses, he says, I stand at the door and knock, and it's your responsibility to open the door. So Jesus preserves here a freedom of response to those he calls to repent. He doesn't force them. This is not irresistible grace. This is not uh, unconditional election. Now, granted, he is talking to the church. He's not talking to those who aren't saved, but those who are members of the church currently. Now, I think it's suggested that it's possible that they lose their status as a church if they don't repent. But nonetheless, he off, he leaves open the freedom of response. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. He doesn't force it upon them. Um, so this is a figure of speech, uh, buy gold from me refined by fire, that Jesus is offering something uh, more valuable than materialism. Um, the gold is a, says Mounts, a spiritual wealth that has passed through the refiner's fire and has been found to be totally trustworthy. Oftentimes in scripture, Jesus talks about, or at least the New Testament writers talk about the inheritance that is laid up for you in heaven that is incorruptible. Uh, don't fear the one who can destroy the body, but the one who can destroy the soul. Don't store up your treasures on earth where moths destroy and robbers steal, but rather store up your treasures in heaven. And that is an eternal righteousness, that true wealth and prosperity is a restored relationship with God and being a full image bearer representing righteousness and holiness, the fullness of what God always intended for his people. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and the rest of these things will be added unto you. And so true riches is what God is offering us, which is the restoration of the image of God made possible for reconciliation with the Creator. That's gold. That's what satisfies. That's what preserves. That's what protects. That's what gives us life and breath, is living the life that God died for us to live. No one can take that from us, and moths can't destroy it. That's the gold that's been refined by fire. That's what Jesus is offering, and it's trustworthy, and it's lasting. Uh, Matthew 13, 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this, the one who hears the word, but cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and proves it unfruitful. Matthew 19, 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Romans 2, 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So riches of kindness. Romans 10, 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is the Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. This is the gold that Jesus is offering, and those riches are righteousness and holiness through a restored relationship with him. 2 Corinthians 2.6, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. 2 Corinthians 8.9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he might become poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus took on the form of man, servant, death, even death on a cross, to bestow upon us, so that's his becoming poor, right? To bestow upon us his righteousness that makes us rich. And may the and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory of Christ Jesus. This is Philippians 4, 19. What about these white garments? We've talked about this before. In God's sight, the Laodiceans were walking about spiritually naked, not according, understanding their humiliation and needing the white robes of righteousness. So white robes are 
symbolic of righteousness, right standing with God. Uh, this is the only place where this becomes a little bit wonky is later in Revelation, where it talks about how the saints will have their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, you know that obviously depicts a a red robe, not a white robe, but it's also washing, washing out the stain of sin or the inner twistedness of the sin condition or the record of sins committed. Um, so white clothes symbolize righteousness widely in Revelation. Revelation 3.4, yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Revelation 4.4, 4, around the throne were 24 elders. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Revelation 6.11, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Revelation 7.13, the, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white and from where have they come? Jesus' clothes became white in the transfiguration, marking his preeminence and, of course, his purity and holiness Matthew's, in Matthew 17. Angels wear white, white robes in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark 16.5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. So white is a sign of cleansing, um, lack of defilement, purity, and forgiveness. Isaiah 118, now come, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. They are like red crimson, they shall become white like wool. Daniel 11:35. and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white. There's more examples. Let's look to anointment for your eyes that you may see. Blindness symbolizes being in a state of sin and confusion. If you can't see um, spiritually, you're confused you're not what God intends. You're unhealthy or sick in the eyes. Um, the law, there's so much we could say here, and I'm tempted to, but I, I have to be restrained. But the law in the Old Testament says the New Testament reveals sin. Sin likes to stay hidden. It wants to be in the dark. It loves the dark. And when grace comes in the form of the law, and God says, don't murder, and we realize there's a desire to murder because he said don't murder, he casts light on or reveals the twisted sin condition of humanity. So without the accounting for sin, uh, there was no, before the law, there was no accounting for sin, but the law reveals sin. And likewise, the Holy Spirit also reveals sin so that we can see it. And we see it in reference to the holiness of Jesus. We can't understand what sin is until we get into close proximity with the Holy One, because everything around us is tainted by and corrupted by sin, all the humans around us and the creation around us. And so our assumption then is that that condition is the norm. It's not until we see something other than that is holy, something that is distinct from, that we can understand that our condition is not in fact ideal, pure, or holy. That's why Isaiah comes to actualize, see his holiness when he gets, or excuse me, his sin when he gets into the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6. Deuteronomy 28, 28, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. Isaiah 6, 10, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Matthew 23, 17, you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold of the temple, the gold of the temp or the temple that has made the gold sacred. So the, he's condemning them for being blind, having a lack of spiritual intelligence. John 9, 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who may and those who see may become blind. Jesus again the light of the world. Second Corinthians four four in the case 
In their case, the God of the, this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There are more examples. Uh, let's see here. Let's move on to verse 18, 19. Excuse me. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So Jesus, of course, loves his followers. Um, Revelation 1.5 and we saw in previous study, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us. So the fact that they're receiving this rebuke is evidence of his love. It's just interesting. I'm in the midst, almost done, reading Tom McCall, his book called Forsaken, about the cry of dereliction from the cross. And that he talks about in one of the chapters how we cannot separate um, wrath, the wrath of God, and the love of God. And likewise, this is here, his rebuke to the church comes because of his love. That is, if we negate the wrath of God, the simple fact that God takes on flesh and brings wrath into himself is evidence for the fact that he loves us without wrath. If we said that God is not wrathful, then we have to throw out the baby with the bathwater, and that baby is the love of God. And so this rebuke comes out of his love. Revelation 3, 9 Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that this hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So again, we're speaking to Revelation three nineteen. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Okay. So, of course, a call to action. Uh, to repent. Uh, there's certainly no salvation without repentance. This came up in conversation recently with a friend of mine. Repeatedly in scripture, there's evidence that repentance is required for salvation. Now, again, he's speaking to the church. So this is a call to return uh, to where they once stood their good standing through repentance enabled by grace. But even getting into being a member of the the, the people of God, repentance is required. Psalm seven twelve. if man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. Luke 13, 3, no, I tell you, but unless you will repent, you will all likewise perish. John 3, 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I interpret this being born of water as John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's requesting permission to em enter. This emphasizes the individual's participation over coerced election. This could recall the parable of the servants waiting for the master to return and knock, but we're not sure. Jesus told that parable, and it was a parable that spoke to his second coming. And of course, the second coming certainly is in view here in the book of Revelation as we're dealing with the end of all things. Um, Let's read that, Luke 12, 35 to 37. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those whose servants, those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. So this could be what he's referring to, but we're not sure. But standing at the door uh, normally indicates that the end is imminent. Mark 13, that is, the end is upon us. Mark 13, 29. So when you see these, these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. He's talking about when this, the, there'll, there'll be signs of the season that will tell you that the end is coming. It doesn't give us his exact date. Then he says, the end is coming. How does he say that? He says, uh, excuse me, I'm yawning here, that he is at the gates, ready to return. James 5, 9. 
Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In other words, the end is imminent. Now remember that Jesus is speaking to the church, that oftentimes um, this is used as an evang- uh, a call, an evangelistic call for people to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Just open the door to your heart and he will come in and dine with you. Um, but it's a little bit miscontextualized when used that way because this is spoken to a church, not to non-believers. It's a call to repentance for those who have fallen from uh, different ways to put it. I don't want to say a state of grace, but those who aren't where they've used, aren't, they've fallen from a position that they used to have. That's language that scripture uses. So Mount says, in the, con- the, in the context of the Laodicean letter, however, is self-deluded members of the church who are being addressed. To the church, Christ says, here I am, I stand at the door, knock. And their blind self-sufficiency, they had, as it were, excommunicated the risen Lord from their congregation. In an act of unbelievable condescension, he requests permission to enter and reestablish fellowship. This is an amazing observation. They've abandoned him and kicked him out, Yet, he condescends to the point of requesting to come back into their presence. Oh, man, this is incredible. God searching out man. God in search for man, Abraham Heschel, a subtitle of one of his his books. Even when we kick him out, he doesn't say, great, I was sick of you. He says, can I please come back in? I think this is true. This could be true in individual lives but certainly of congregation as it, congregations as, an, as is evidenced here in the letter to Laodicea. Dining with Jesus is an invitation to relationship with the future hope for life in the future. So um, we, we see this in the New Testament, specifically with, of course, the Eucharist and communion. I will come and eat with him and he with me. Uh, this means a mutual um, relationship that is self-affirmed and desired and an, a sense of intimacy. Uh, without going into all the theology of sacramental theology and the Eucharist of sharing in the same food, thereby making us uh, made up of the same stuff. We are what we eat, right? And so we're all made up of the same stuff, thereby demonstrating union, intimate union with one another. That's the imagery that we get with eating. There's a lot more going on here. That's a kind of a one-dimensional explanation, but we have to restrict ourselves for time's sake. Um, the future messianic banquet, the idea that the coming kingdom of God will be a banquet was part of the Jewish tradition. We see this Isaiah 26, 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. It even makes its way into some intertestamental literature, 1 Enoch 62, 14, and the Lord of spirits will abide over them, and with the Son of Man shall they eat and lie down and rise up forever and ever. Matthew 8, 11 to 12, back to canonical scripture. It's a little redundant. Back to scripture. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what Jesus is telling them when he says, I knock, let me in to come eat with you. He's talking about his, the final, the final, the second coming the end of all things. This isn't just a ran, this isn't just like right now I'm asking. That's certainly the case. He does want to dine with us, but this is a specific reference to an end time eschatological event. Revelation 19.9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. The Lord's supper was a way for Christians to enjoy fellowship with one another. And of course, with Christ. Marriage supper of the lamb. When we take communion, uh, there's certainly a element that um, plays into the present, no doubt about it, that Jesus' presence is with us here and now, and we are united with him and one another. 
But remember, it is also a foreshadowing of the final supper of the Lamb. It's forward pointing that the culmination of the kingdom has yet to be uh, fully actualized. And so there's an eschatological dynamic to communion as well as we partake in a meal today that is representative of a much greater meal that will happen at the end upon his return. Okay, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne. Of course, um, this is the same thing that we see. They will uh, receive the star of Jacob. They will reign with me. We've talked about this in ex- uh, extensively in the past. So I don't want to get into all those details yet again. Um, let's see here. Let's read Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Second Timothy two twelve. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. So uh, there's a promise that we participate with Christ in reigning over the new creation. Um, of course, uh, as I said, we've talked about this extensively, but this is the establishment, the the restoration of the image of God in humanity as his uh, vice regent image bearers in the creation, that humanity was always intended to reign, you know, have dominion, he says to Adam and Eve in the garden, reign over the creation in my likeness, you are image bearers. And so Jesus, because of his work, restores that image, he is the restoration of the image, and we partake in likeness of Jesus, the image is restored, and humanity's proper role is reestablished in the creation, and that is a role of reigning over the creation. Okay, Laodicea, chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And next, we move on to chapter 4, the great throne room vision. As we continue on in our study in the book of Revelation, God bless you. This is Matt Ayers, Seminary Unboxed, Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we train trusted leaders for faithful churches.